minus 15 seconds. Alright, so today we get to talk to Philippe, who is a very experienced man in the, in the construction of high-performance homes. He has his own consulting company called Handprint Consulting, and he also works at McGill, uh, helping them in their sustainable construction practices. He has a big picture perspective on what it means to build sustainable, uh, environmentally conscious construction projects. We dive deep, hang on tight. Uh, I know you're going to enjoy this. Philippe, good to have you. It's nice to meet you today. Thanks for joining us on Net Zero to Hero podcast. Um, and the question that I had asked is, it, it seemed like you started your journey as a home inspector, but found yourself at this place where now you're instructing passive house design and have a consultancy. And I'd love to hear about your journey and how you got there. Sure. Yeah. So um, I actually started my journey um, quite a long time ago. My father um, had started a, a construction company um, in the early 80s. And um, when I was about 16 years old, I started working um, with him as a summer job on sites, doing all the grunt work, all the stuff that the, you know, the experienced trades don't want to, don't want to touch with a 10 foot pole. And um, I'd never really anticipated getting into construction. You know, it was a great summer job. It was fun to, to work with my family, but um, it's not what I had um, in mind for my future. And um, so I actually, you know, I studied in, in business and um, I worked in, in international business for a little bit, um, specifically in logistics. And after, after a little while, I realized it wasn't really what I was looking to do. Um, I was happy to work with family. I liked, you know, I have a good relationship with my, with my um, father, with my siblings. And um, so I returned to the family construction company and, uh, you know, mostly focused on commercial, institutional, um, industrial construction. But I was always interested in the sustainability portion of things. And, and there's very little that was happening on that side in the projects that I was involved in. Um, so on the side, I would do my own research. I would try and have clients integrated into their projects. But as a contractor, you're really at the end of the supply chain. So um, to try and change things at that point is, is much more challenging. And um, one day I was visiting, I think it was a green roof, downtown Montreal. And um, I bumped into someone who mentioned Passive House and the concept of it. And um, I was very interested in it. I, I looked into it a little bit more. And I think, you know, it was something like a, a couple of days or maybe even hours before I signed myself up to, um, to take the course, because I really enjoyed the, the approach of it and, you know, how structured and logical it was. And that, you know, kind of stayed dormant for a little bit, again, because we were focused on non-residential construction and the application of Passive Us in the non-residential sector at that point was almost unheard of. Definitely in Canada, there wasn't really anything happening. And, um, and then I was at a point in my life where I was looking to, to buy my first home 
And I said, well, it's definitely going to have to be a passive house. So I started marketing. I started shopping for, um, for a building in, um, in the plateau area of Montreal, which is a densely populated area. And I had very specific criteria for, um, the characteristics of the building. So in terms of orientation, sizing, exposed facades and all of that, um, to allow me to pursue passive house certification, knowing though that it would be extremely challenging because I'd be working with a retrofit project in a very densely populated part of, of the city. So um, all that to say that eventually got the building, you know, built my first passive house. Um, and while that was happening, a friend of mine actually came across a, a job posting at McGill University for a new position that had been created um, called the sustainability construction officer. And the whole role of this, of this position was to reduce the environmental impact of all of the construction projects at the university. And the job description was almost exclusively things that I was paying to do in my free time. So, <laughs> well, that just feels like alignment right there. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, it, it, it was, um, you know, I'm very fortunate that my, my friend put me onto this because I would never have come across it. And, um, you know, so I decided to, to apply for the position. I ended up getting the position and uh, I've been there since. And um, at the same time, in parallel, I started working with uh, Passive House Canada as an instructor. Um, and um, I find that the two are just very synergistic in terms of what I can bring to the table when I'm instructing for Passive House Canada and, and what the, con the consistent and, and constant research required to be an instructor brings back to my day-to-day -day, um, work at the yeah, university. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, so it's layering positively on top of one another and they, there's obviously uh, some synchronicity in the process. Exactly. So, um, and then, and then to that, um, I decided to, to offer consulting services for certain projects because over the years I had many people approach me who wanted to, to get me involved in their projects. And, um, you know, I, I had way too much on my plate back then. Uh, so initially I would just kindly refuse their offers. <laughs> um, and, um, but more recently I, I've decided to, to add a little bit more to my plate and, and it's kind of a juggling act because I also, you know, I don't want to just be working to work my whole life. I, I'm inspired to, by the work I do and I'm inspired by the fact that I can, by working harder, I can help reduce the environmental impact that we have on this planet. Yes. Um, but at the same time, at some point you, you have to live your life as well. Right? So, and to be effective at what you do, you, you need some form of respite. Oh yeah. For perspective and, uh, rejuvenation for sure. Cause, uh, especially if, uh, it, uh, I'd love to hear more about your experience, but understanding how the different layers of, uh, the responsible building come together. It requires a lot of mental horsepower to kind of like, well, if I do this, what's the causal effect of that? And if I want to achieve this outcome, what are the several factors that need to converge to make that high performance building possible? It's not a light task. For sure. I agree. And it, and it requires a, a, a very interdisciplinary approach. If you're really looking to tackle something holistically. And and I think that's the piece that uh, that I'm I'm really curious on. When you say interdisciplinary, like what does that mean to you? 
So I guess it depends on the problem that you're looking to tackle. Um, but in general, I would say an interdisciplinary approach is when you bring people together from diverse backgrounds and not just necessarily diverse technical backgrounds, but diverse life experience, because um, the, the different perspectives that everyone brings to the table forces each one of us to challenge our assumptions and um, to address issues that might not have even been on our radar. So, you know, we, we all, I think, are guilty to some degree of, of um, going down a certain path. And once we've started down that path, we don't really look elsewhere to see what's happening or, or to re-question our initial choices. Um, and so having people around the table that force you to re-question those and that can be, you know, from a technical perspective or from a philosophical perspective, I think brings a lot to a project or, or to any endeavor really in life. And when it comes to construction projects, what I find is that, um, and I see this in my own personal evolution, certain things that I, that I assumed were beneficial for the environment and that were really contributing to reducing the overall environmental impact of a building. Um, I have come to realize cannot be blindly pursued. And blindly pursued. Okay, <laughs> I like this. Okay, and and it's and it, it's a question of really looking at each project and its context, and evaluating the assumptions that go into certain decisions, design decisions. You know, a good example this is, is yeah, uh, it just begs the question, please explain more. Keep going. Yeah. Well, a good example is, is water efficiency. So water efficiency is very important. Water is a scarce resource in, in many parts of the world. And, um, and, you know, I think it, if you asked anyone today, does it make sense to minimize the water consumption of a given building, they would, you'd have a blanket. Yes. Across the board. Um, but the truth is that it's, it's a much more nuanced um, approach that's required. And you can't just look at water efficiency on its own and say it's great to reduce water consumption and minimize the unnecessary use of potable water. You have to look at what the, the impacts associated with reducing that water consumption are. And when you look specifically at the Montreal context, for example, um, we source our water from the St. Lawrence River, and we process that water to make it potable water quite efficiently. So there's a very small carbon footprint in terms of how we process that water. There, there aren't that many chemicals involved in treating it. Um, the storage of it is quite effective, even though we lose something like 30% of our water due to holes in the distribution network. Um, all that to say that when you look specifically at the Montreal context, focusing on water reduction can actually be detrimental to the overall impact of the project after a certain point. So if you go with, you're replacing your fixtures or you're installing new fixtures and you, you install very efficient fixtures, that's a no brainer, right? Because the environmental impact of those very efficient, those very efficient fixtures, fixtures isn't any greater necessarily than less efficient fixtures. Yeah, so you get the Moen high efficiency versus the Moen conventional 
it, there's still a cost to produce both faucets. Pick the more efficient one, better all around. Exactly. But but if you have a toilet that's installed and you're looking to replace it with a more efficient toilet, buying a new toilet when you already have one that's working and looking at the the uh, embodied environmental footprint of producing that new toilet. Well, the water savings of its use might never offset the the uh, impact of its production. Right. So that's just one example of of how you know sometimes you have to take a step back and and challenge your assumptions and and really look holistically at 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 what the impacts are and and where they can be addressed and how they should be addressed. So. Philippe, am I hearing you say something to the effect of the tear it all down and build it all new with better quality materials isn't necessarily the right or lowest environmental impact answer? Definitely. So again, I try and I, I try and avoid blanket approaches because um, there's always uh, an exception to the rule, and and we shouldn't talk in absolutes. But most of the time. Building a new building is worse than working with an existing building. Now, it's not to say you shouldn't do anything to the existing building, but um, you should evaluate your um, whatever renovations you're looking to bring to the building against whatever benefits they might provide. And those benefits, again, taking a more holistic perspective, might not just be environmental, because there's also these social aspects of um of those retrofits or the economic aspects of those retrofits that have to be considered right so you have the 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 three pillars of sustainability which are social economic and environmental and it's often hard to try and take all into account when you're pursuing any uh, construction project but in theory you should if you're really looking to have the best overall impact and, you know, it's interesting to me, this is the first conversation I've had um, where we're discussing, I'm, I'm using the term very generally here, but the the maybe don't renovate and make it more efficient conversation in light of there's actually a cost, you know, when you're buying all that new insulation and all that new siding and therefore throwing out all the existing siding and all the existing insulation and putting that in the landfill and then going through the the expense. But I hear you mentioning things that imply embodied carbon, you know, the transportation costs and uh, the impact on the environment producing this new material all should have, uh, they sh- their voice should matter in the conversation as distinct from simply, well, if we put eight inches of exterior insulation on, you're going to save this much on your utility bill every month. So go ahead and do it. Exactly. It's definitely. Yeah. I, and, and that's where it becomes very challenging, right? This is something that I try and bring up in, in the Passive House courses as well, is Passive House is a, a great approach to energy efficiency. It's not necessarily a great approach to um, environmental impact reduction. So you really have to look at your project and be willing to say that I'm not going to blindly pursue Passive House certification. I'm going to pursue the greatest levels of energy efficiency that I can pursue without diminishing returns with respect to environmental impact or with respect to the cost of the project, et cetera. So in other words, for certain projects and for certain energy grids that feed those projects, it doesn't make any sense to pursue passive house levels of performance if your goal is truly to reduce environmental impact. But 
if your primary goal is, for example, to improve indoor air quality, improve uh, indoor acoustics, improve thermal comfort, that's a different story. Now we start looking at and, the social social side of things. And then just to uh, you know to, to to come up for a moment and talk to some of the listeners who uh, you know because Passive House, I think we're talking about this very candidly. We're in the process of becoming Passive House designer consultants as well, just because we believe in the and I'm going to say in the philosophy of it, and we want to just get better at this. But Passive House. Uh, in BC, we, a lot of people are talking about net zero or the energy step code to get to net zero. Um, and the question that's going to come up for people is, what do I do to build a ener- more energy efficient home that meets the regulatory restrictions? For example, I think we're at step three right now. We're moving to step four. Um, how do we, how do we, how do they navigate forward without kind of this gridlocked of you're damned if you do you're damned if you don't and i'd love to hear your perspective because you you sounds like you bought a home you went shopping for homes so that you could build a passive house like that just says there's a level of intentionality but also capacity uh and i'd love to hear how your philosophy has evolved over the years sure so i would say the the first thing that people should understand is there's only so much you can do and you have to choose your battles. Everyone only has so much bandwidth and there's only so much you can learn in, in a short period of time. And there are different approaches to, to sustainable construction and sustainability in general. Now, when you're talking about home retrofits or, or new home construction and pursuing higher levels of energy efficiency, the first thing you want to do is appropriately choose your materials. So there are materials that have higher embodied environmental footprints. And when I, when I say embodied environmental footprints, that's all of the energy and resources that went into producing those materials and getting them to your construction site. So there are certain materials that have higher embodied footprints versus others, but provide a similar level of performance. So when we talk about insulation materials, for example, you have all of your um, fossil fuel derived insulation materials that have some form of of, um, environmental footprint. And then you have your insulation materials that are derived from renewable resources that also have an environmental footprint, but tends to be significantly lower than those fossil fuel derived insulation materials. So like XPS versus cellulose, for example. Yeah. So that's the first and easiest step to do because there's only one thing to focus on. You're saying, I'm going to insulate my building as opposed to working with XPS insulation. I'm going to work with cellulose insulation. And I can be fairly confident that overall, I'm going to reduce substantially my footprint just by making that switch. And and can you just, and I'm curious about what some of your, your list of your favorite materials to work with are, but for, for those people that don't know, what is XPS versus cellulose? Fair enough. Yeah. So XPS is a, a rigid, rigid insulation material. It's um, it's used. Um, it can be used below slabs, within walls, within roof assemblies, and um, it's um, it stands for extruded uh, polystyrene. Um, and it, we're talking like the big sheets of like pink styrofoam that's like stiff like plywood kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, for for those of you who are maybe less technical, it's the blue 
or pink or now gray sheets of foam that you buy. Oh, we got gray now. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. So the gray ones have, uh, have a lower, um, um, embodied uh, footprint because they use a blowing agent that has a lower global warming potential. Yeah. Um, but anyways, all that to say that the first thing you can do is look at, at the insulation materials you, you, that you want to use. If you're looking to pursue um, higher levels of energy efficiency and choose ones that have a lower impact, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Really what you should be doing is when you're considering building first consider whether or not there are buildings that you could repurpose. So is there an existing building that you could renovate instead of building a new one? And that's a much more difficult subject to broach with a potential client because um, everyone likes new, shiny, state of the oh, yeah, things. Yeah. Shiny new things, yeah. for sure. And, and you know, who am I to tell you that you can't have a shiny new object? Um, because that's what brings you happiness. And, and um, so if you're willing to question that, great. If you're not, then take steps in the right direction to reduce your overall footprint. And, and now if we come back to the, the macro scale and we talk about looking at a project in BC, for example, versus a project in Alberta, BC and Alberta have very different energy grids. So BC is one of the cleanest um, electrical grids in the country. And Alberta has one of the, um, I won't say dirtiest, but the- Carbon one, intensive. Carbon intensive grids, thank you. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> As one of the most carbon intensive grids um, in the country. And so um, the, the embodiment- and, and just for clarification, why is that? Because we got uh, some of our audiences in the States and, uh, and Europe. So it's like, why is Alberta distinctly different from BC? Um, so BC has a lot of hydroelectricity and Alberta generates a lot of its electricity um, from fossil fuels. Uh, and the same for Manitoba and Quebec also have a, a large quantity of hydroelectric um, uh, facilities. And so the overall carbon intensity per kilowatt hour is, is very, very low. There's actually some of the lowest in the world. Okay. So now if you're building a project and you're planning on sourcing all of your energy from the local energy grid. So you're planning on heating and cooling your building um, with electricity. And obviously um, all of your electrical needs will be met via the electrical grid. Well, now you really have to question your choice of materials and you have to ch question to what degree you pursue energy efficiency if your end goal is really to mitigate climate change. So if we take the Quebec example, I'll just throw some numbers out here. The average um, Canadian commercial institutional building consumes about 275 kilowatt hours per meter squared per year for all of its energy requirements. And um, if you look at the average embodied carbon of the average institutional building or commercial building, it's going to be somewhere around 500 kilograms of CO2 per meter squared. It ranges substantially. It can be significantly higher. It can be somewhat lower, but let's just use that number. Um, now, I don't have the, the calculations in front of me, but I'm going to try and, and pull this from memory. If we talk about the embodied carbon 
of a construction project in Quebec, it would take about, I think it was 800 years before the operational carbon from that 275 kilowatt hours per meter squared per year was equal to the embodied carbon. Now, right. if we work backwards and you say, well, is this building going to be around for 800 years? And most of us, I think, would assume it wouldn't be. Then our primary goal shouldn't be energy efficiency. It should be reducing as much as possible the embodied carbon footprint of the building, if we're talking about climate change. Right. But coming back again, that's not a very holistic approach because there are knock-on effects of having inefficient buildings. Um, there's there's peak um, energy consumption and and emissions related to um, the the grid peaks. There's also the ability to export energy outside of Quebec to jurisdictions that have you know a more less efficient grid, so we can share the share the clean energy other if we if we offer more exactly. have more to share. So there's there's somewhere you know, along that curve where you have that, that inflection point where you have diminishing returns, but you should pursue energy efficiency up until that point. Yeah. Now, do you have any clarity on what that point practically is? Is there, is there any, you know, the 80, 20 principle, like, I feel like there's, there are some shortcuts to get to the bulk of the benefit sometimes. Does that apply here? Yes. So um, the embodied footprint of our building, and again, when I say embodied, that's all the resources and energy that went into producing that building. So, so the gas that goes into the truck that delivers the materials, the the diesel oil that's in the forester machine that's cutting down trees, the processing plants that are uh, making the tree into the two by fours and delivering that to the site, all these things. Exactly. So- when we talk about all of that and we talk about the overall footprint of our building, most of the footprint is going to be concentrated in the structure, in the yeah. building envelope, and in the mechanical systems. So, well, I should say actually mechanical electrical plumbing because it's, it's shared amongst them and the, the division can be almost equal between the three, although it's usually more heavily weighted on mechanical. Now, the structure, when we talk about non-wood buildings, the structure tends to represent somewhere in the vicinity of 50% of the overall environmental footprint of our project. And then the building envelope is going to be somewhere around 20%, and then MEP is going to be another somewhere around 20%. And these, these percentages vary, again, based on the type of project and the, and the complexity and, and all of that. So what I hear you saying is basically a building, on the, once it gets to lockup, 70% of the embodied carbon has been installed on the project. The structure's in, the foundation's in, the walls are up, the roof's on. It's sealed up, but it's empty on the inside. Exactly. So if you're looking to, to take the quickest approach to reducing the footprint, it's going to be to focus on the structure first and the building envelope after that. Now, the, the, the interesting thing, though, is that the building envelope is directly tied to the energy efficiency. And certain materials allow us to sequester carbon over the lifetime of the building, meaning that those materials actually lock in carbon while they're being produced. So these are primarily plant-based materials. Um, so as those plants are growing, they're taking carbon out of the atmosphere to make up their cells. 
right? And they, they usually yeah. consist of somewhere around 50% carbon. That carbon stays locked up in their cells. We use their cells for our buildings. So, you know, an, an, an easy example is wood, right? Wood is made up about 50% carbon. We use that carbon in our building. It's locked in our building until the day that wood rots or burns. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. And if we focus on using those carbon sequestering materials to also contribute to our energy efficiency, then we're, we're winning on both ends. So our building is going to consume less energy and we're actually going to um, sequester more carbon by using more of those materials. Now, this, now I'm referring to insulation materials, right? So if we talk yes. about cellulose or straw or, um, or hemp-based insulation or um, you know, a number of other plant-based insulation materials, the more we use of those materials, the more we actually draw carbon out of the atmosphere and lock it into our buildings. Okay. And so if that's your strategy, you don't have to question so much to what degree you should stop pursuing energy efficiency because the use of more of those materials to some degree mitigates climate change. Now, that's not to say you should use those materials irresponsibly. You still need to... Um, you know, try and be very effective in the use and application of your materials and not overuse materials. But you don't have to be quite so vigilant in terms of um, optimizing everything. So what I hear you saying, because, you know, classic building construction, uh, you know, for the decade, the last decade that you know, I'm doing renovation construction, you got the pink insulation in the walls. It's got the poly vapor barrier on the inside. It's got tar paper on the outside, maybe Tyvek if you're lucky. The red tuck tape is already delaminated. Um, and I and now the retrofit is typically rock wool uh, is the seems to me like the popular choice I've heard. I've heard people describe cellulose, which is shredded newspaper. Is that a fair description? That's a fair description. It it seems vulnerable to me. Like when I when I hear that concept, I'm like, if I peel up shredded newspaper and then there's any humidity in the air, it turns into a wet clump. So, like, talk to me about these common these. We've touched extruded polystyrene; it's not a good environmental option, even though it's a decent insulator. Where does rock wool fit into this? And because it has some advantages that cellulose, for example, might not in terms of water resilience. Yeah. So again, this is going to depend on the type of building you have and um, the type of wall assembly that, that you're planning on using. Rockwool is an interesting product because of its ability to deal with moisture and um, with pests and uh, the versatility of its application. But when we talk about the environmental impact, it's actually a fairly energy intensive material to produce. And we tend to see, you know, a greater use of rock wool, or say mineral wool, because rock wool is actually yeah. a brand. A proprietary, yeah, mineral wool is what I meant to say, yes. Um, the, the increased use of mineral wool is primarily due to the fact that people are fairly comfortable using it in environments and, and knowing that um, it should hold up over time. But that doesn't mean that it's the optimal material to use in all cases. And, you know, uh, mineral wool versus cellulose, for example, there, there are advantages to going with cellulose in certain cases because um, cellula cellulose is a, um, 
hygroscopic material. So it actually um, takes in moisture. And it's a great example you gave, right? If you wet that newspaper, it's going to kind of turn into a moist clump. Um, well, that can actually be advantageous. So obviously, you don't want too much moisture in your cellulose, but the cellulose acts as a buffer for moisture, whereas um, whereas mineral wool doesn't. Mineral allows for the diffusion of moisture with very little um, resistance. Yeah. So your cellulose wool can actually take in a fair amount of moisture and distribute it within that cellulose before any damage occurs to your structural assemblies. So it can kind of spread out that moisture and um, allow for a greater degree of buffering. And then it can also um, potentially return some of that moisture to the interior environment if you're using a dynamic uh, vapor retarder um, when the interior environment is, is fairly dry, right? So you, you can kind of um, help stabilize the, the moisture content of your assemblies over time when you yep. use uh, cellulose versus using mineral wool. But, you know, that's just one, that's one characteristic that you may or may not find desirable depending on what your wall assembly is. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating nuance. So if I'm hearing you correctly, and please correct, like, please offer uh, any correction here. So some of your favorite products are actually natural born products. So obviously. Uh, so if you had a choice to build a structural wall out of wood or out of concrete, wood has a lower environmental impact because it actually contains the carbon that was that the trees sequestered and locks it into the structure as long as the building stands. Uh, if we can use alternate fibers, um, like the like you said, straw, I'm sure there, there's, I know there's uh, hempcrete is, uh, uses the hemp fiber with a Portland cement to create an alternative to just, I guess, pure concrete as it would be. Uh, with some insulating characteristics is is that a, a fair summary statement of the way you like to think about buildings so there are a few caveats to that statement um overall i would say it's generally the approach that i favor but um first i would say when it comes to wood sustainably sourced wood is yes. beneficial as compared to concrete but unsustainably sourced wood is not necessarily beneficial. Yeah. So just because you're working with wood doesn't mean you're doing a good You get job. a gold star because you cut down the forest. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. so it's important to be careful. And when I say sustainably sourced wood, the gold standard for sustainably sourced wood is um, FSC certified wood. Forest Standards Council, is that? Uh, uh, Forest uh, Stewardship. Uh, yeah. yeah. So... Um, FSC wood versus concrete, definitely. But the other caveat is it depends where you're using it. So certain materials are better for certain applications. And I think the approach that should be favored is to use the appropriate materials in the appropriate places with the least amount of material required. So concrete where concrete has the most advantages, steel where steel has the most advantages, wood where wood has the most advantages. And in all cases, you minimize and optimize the use of each one of those materials. Which is where intelligent design principles come into play. Uh, and I think that's where, yeah, I agree with you there. Yeah, but easier said than done, right? Because it requires a much more um, analytical approach to how you design your building. You, you can't just take rules of thumb and apply them. You really have to 
question first principles and almost start from scratch on every single building because certain things you'll be able to to you know apply to all buildings but most things you'll have to um, redesign for your specific project in its specific location yeah. context specific solutions is what exactly. i hear you saying yeah and I, I know that uh, the challenge that that some of uh, some of people some of the people building new homes are going to face is even the municipalities are used to seeing things done a particular way. So if you offer, I'm going to say, an optimized uh, design plan on a home that takes these factors into consideration and it deviates from the convention of the what would be a classic stucco box. Um, built on the side of a excavated hill, uh, it's they might run into some challenges in the bureaucracy of the plan checkers and the building inspectors who just aren't familiar with this, which I know is the case in some of the rural communities um, in our province where there's just it's honestly not the education or the manpower to to stay up to speed with these. Um, I'm going to say more more considerate approaches to building construction. I'm I'm also curious the FSC piece. You know, for for people that would go to you know Home Depot uh, or a building lumber supply store to buy their lumber, you know, you're walking down the aisle of two by fours, two by sixes, two by tens. How do you find FSC wood so that you can actually you know put your dollars to make that conscious decision to influence the market? I've I've never seen a badge on an on the yeah. lumber. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so the um... FSC has a website where you can actually see the uh, distributors of any type of wood anywhere in the world. Okay. So that would be the best way to start your search, or you could work backwards and contact the suppliers with which you're used to working and asking them if they can offer it. If you're working with existing suppliers and you, you make them aware of the fact that you're pursuing um, greater levels of, of um, environmental um, efficiency and, and um, reducing your overall environmental impact, and you're looking to procure FSC wood, that raises awareness across the industry for the desire to source FSC yeah. wood, right? Because if you never express that interest... Yeah, they want to sell you what you're going to pay for. So if you're saying, I'm willing to pay for this, uh, they'll move in that direction. It'll start to sway their bulk purchasing decisions. Exactly. So, you know, if you can't find anyone that's willing to do that, then you can go to the FSC database and, and find companies that already do and source from them. But making your suppliers aware of your intention to move in that direction, I think is actually more interesting because it, it'll just push the industry in that direction. And then they'll, they'll start asking for more FSC, which will, which will um, move logging companies towards producing more FSC wood. And, you know, it's a, it's a virtuous circle. Now I, you know, I actually, I'm not intimidated by what you're saying. Cause it sounds like, oh, wow, that's a lot of effort. I'm like, you know what, there, there has been whole movements in our society where like ethically sourced clothing and where, you know, companies that produce their t-shirts and sweatshops where children have to work for slave labor you know, wages, uh, as a, as a, as a consumer base, we started to put pressure on people that were just sourcing their materials the raw materials from these places that were no longer something we would we would accept in our social conscience so uh this doing it in the lumber space uh is really not a deviation from from that whole philosophy and uh and i think has has, has served well 
to make meaningful shifts at an industry level. Now, I'm curious, do you have any questions that are sitting on the on the horizon for you? Things that you're looking into that you haven't problems you haven't solved yet or things that you're curious about? I have a list of questions uh, for sure. I would say, though, there's one particular thing that I I personally see as the um, as the future of a lot of our construction projects, and that is um, digital manufacturing. So the ability to um, automate and digitize what we currently do manually in terms of actual construction, because we've made the shift on the um, design side towards digital forms of project design, right? No one really draws out projects by hand anymore. We've, we've gone from 2D drawings to 3D models and um, to harmonize 3D models with class detection. Now, I think, the shift is going to have to happen to the actual construction of those buildings. So why do we go from a digital model to a manual assembly? And, and why aren't we looking at just digitizing it as much as possible across the entire um, supply chain? Can you just give me an example of, of what you imagine that looking like? Well, I see um, the focus right now is in terms of, of um, printing buildings, so digital manufacturing. There, there are companies out there that are currently printing buildings, but they focus on printing using concrete and printing the structure exclusively. I see the future and, you know, whether or not this is ever a possibility, maybe this is way too far in the future, but personally, I see the future as you're printing 90% of a building, including all of its distribution, ventilation, plumbing, structure, building envelope. You're printing all of that, and there are certain components that you're adding onto that that you couldn't print. For example, you're never going to print the glass in a window. Um, there are certain things that have to be manufactured in very controlled environments and, and are more cost-effective to do so. Um, so I think that it makes sense for the industry to move in that direction. And the advantage of moving in that direction is that it also frees up a lot of the labor that goes towards new project construction that can now focus on retrofitting existing buildings. Yeah. So it makes retrofitting existing buildings more interesting, more cost-effective, and um, and makes the construction of new buildings less resource-intensive and um, more streamlined and less likely to, you know, it increases the, the quality of product, et cetera. But the technology is not there yet. So maybe this is 10 years down but, the line, 20 years down the line, 30 years down the line, I don't know. But the design philosophy, the, the, the key components of the design philosophy are present and available just yet it hasn't been adopted industry-wide it what you're saying uh in so many ways reminds me of a modular systems design concept um not just modular homes i'm talking about like modular systems where you can uh you say print i'd say uh, prefabricate um for for seamless integration into the whole building system um i'm not i'm not saying what i'm saying is the exact 
of what you're you've just described but uh but i do think that there is a, a collective consciousness moving into that because there's a lot of manpower hours time energy slow layer upon layer building construction process that takes place on a job site it is manual uh and it is labor intensive and i hear you going how do we if people built cars the way we built homes we wouldn't have many cars to be able to buy it would just be too too slow too rigorous a process and they'd be way too expensive exactly so it's, it's mass customization which is what 3d printing was supposed to bring to the manufacturing sector it hasn't quite delivered on that promise yet um it has for certain for certain products but i think i see the future of the building industry lies somewhere in that realm and 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 exploiting that approach and that technology. Yeah. You know, and as we draw to a close, there's been so much uh, that you've shared and I really appreciate that you're, you have an insightful philosophy uh, and you've evidently invested a ton of your personal resources. Like you said, you were, you were paying to do these things and then you, you found a career that aligned with that. And I'm, uh, I, I'm grateful. And because I've been challenged to think about things differently, um, because my my tendency is to find an optimized standardized solution and like if that's the i want to say mineral wool not rock mineral wool uh and a two by six frame construction and just like blindly march down that path because it just becomes familiar and i hear you you advocating to to challenge a standardized approach and consider a contextually appropriate approach and take a good hard look to see if there's some existing infrastructure that can be repurposed rather than just consider the build new and build to, to new passive house standard as the ideal and only gold standard solution. You know, um, but you know, you, you obviously you're competent, you train, you teach, you lead across many different domains. You know, if, if you were speaking to an audience and what is that one thing you, you, you would hope to impart to them or that they would know or understand, uh, if, if you could share that, uh, the thing that matters, in your opinion, matters like close to the most. What would that be? I would say, as a philosophy, the the thing that matters the most is to really consider context and um, to understand that true sustainability, by definition, can't be a blanket approach because it requires you to look at what resources are available at that specific moment in time in that specific location and, um, and adapt your approach to the resources available. You know, nature does this by virtue of how ecosystems are structured and there are ebbs and flows and sustainability in any other field I don't see as being different. So I would say if there's one takeaway from this webcast, it's that sustainability will always be more complicated than applying a direct rule of thumb approach to anything. But just because it's more complicated doesn't mean it's not worth the effort and doesn't mean that it won't be a more enjoyable process and doesn't mean that it will be a more costly process. It just means that you're going to invest more energy upfront into resolving issues and into the design of your project. And potentially you can benefit from that initial investment through savings further down the line. Absolutely. And you know what? And also 
our grandchildren are going to look back at us and, uh, and they're going to get to live with what we decide to do today with our time, energy, focus, and resource capacity. And, and we have a lot to draw on these days. So really, I also feel like we have a, we not just, we don't have excuses, but we also have a responsibility, uh, which is just, uh, meaningful. It's our opportunity. So yeah, it's worth the effort just because it's a challenge doesn't mean we should be afraid. Thanks for listening to the Net Zero to Hero podcast. Be sure to visit our website at netzerotohero.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and gain access to our free resources and materials. 